Well, good evening, family. Um, before we uh, sing some songs of worship tonight, uh, Nick is going to uh, have a little family meeting with us to to uh, tell you why we have some ropes sitting around the seats that you might have seen. Um, and if I'm completely honest with you, I don't know where Nick is. <laughs> hey, Nick. Hey, let's all say hey, Nick, on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Nick. Okay, let's stand and sing. He can talk after that. Come on. Let's worship Jesus. Take a moment to read this scripture. If you aren't already, read this passage from Philippians about the Lord about our posture as we mirror him, as we look to him.
Happy New Year! Okay, come on, Happy New Year, Mosaic! How we feeling? Hi, I'm Colin. Uh, I serve here with, I get to lead a community group. They're actually selling books tonight, so if you didn't get an Esther book, my community group's out there. Woo -woo. And one of them was playing guitar. Russ, where you at? Hey, we're a community group. Uh, I also serve with our community team here. Nick, something is different about this room. One of the things that we talked about, um, it was about a year ago, I think, um, we talked about just the change and transformation that's gone on in this congregation over the last two years. And, and beyond what was happening everywhere else in the world with pandemic and a lot of other things going on, we also launched three congregations out of Mosaic. We launched Samaritan Springdale, Samaritan Rogers, and Fellowship Bentonville. We sent with them a huge number of our staff and a huge number of our people. And there can be the perception that a church shrinking means something is wrong. Um, but whenever the church is shrinking because the church is multiplying and sending people to start new congregations to reach people that aren't currently reached, that's not a sign of unhealth. That's a sign of health. That's Amen. what we strive for. But one of the things I've heard a lot over the last couple of months is, what's wrong on Saturday night? The room feels so empty. Now, the, the interesting thing is, if we're looking for health, we've actually seen incredible signs of health in this congregation over the last two years. Just a few things I've seen. So if we want to talk numbers, uh, numbers aren't really the thing we're primarily concerned with. We're primarily concerned with lives being changed to look more like Jesus. But if we were talking numbers, 
we actually continued to grow as a congregation through sending all the people that we've sent. And here's the number that I find most fascinating. In 2022, we averaged 410 people worshiping together on a Saturday night. And we have 406 people in community groups. That is an unheard of ratio for any church that tries to do the large group gathering, small group gathering model. That tells me that what's happening is we have a congregation that is really engaged, really bought into what's happening. And the reason it might feel like something is wrong on Saturday night is because we have a few hundred people worshiping in a room built for 1,200 people, right? And we've looked into it for a lot of other reasons. There, There aren't other rooms that are a really good fit on Saturday night to do what we do. So we need to stay in this room, but we want you to experience being tighter together. So that's the reason for the ropes, and I get it. I know that like you would love to be able to sit wherever, but I really think for the good of growing together, like Matt Natesel talked about last week, for experiencing worship together, I think it'd be great if we would tighten in. So we're gonna ask you just to play ball with us. We're gonna try to shrink the room down. That doesn't mean introverts need to turn into extroverts, okay? That doesn't mean you have to suddenly say hi to everyone in the room every time you go. Um, We can respect different personalities worshiping together and still have a space that is shared together as we seek to connect with Christ and worship together. So that's what's going on. We're gonna be telling you about it for the next couple of weeks. The vision is we want everyone to experience the feeling of the health that we're convinced is actually happening in this body week in and week out as people seek Jesus together. So that's what it's about. It's beautiful. And uh, Nick, where's your community group? My community group is right here. Come on, let's hear it. Hey, and I want you to see, where are they seated? They're, look at that, they're all together. together. How perfect is that? They're really wonderful. Is anybody else sitting with your community group right now? Ooh, okay. So hopefully you see, if you're just coming here on Saturdays to worship with us, awesome. We're so glad you're here. But that is a sliver of what we're trying to do as followers of Jesus, that we actually long to exist in a small group, in community, every other day of the week as well, Right? Hey, if you're brand new and you're like, this is a lot for my first night, you need to go to this right now. It's called Discover. Uh, I cannot encourage you enough to sign up. Let's go ahead and you can take that QR code as well as if you've never done this before, would you take your phone out? It's like the only time I'm probably gonna ask you to take your phone out. Go ahead, take your phone out. Everybody. They're not obeying you. Everybody, I'm not moving forward. I got the mic. Scan this. And it's going to take you to a link that has everything you need to know about just what's happening in our body outside of these services throughout the week. Cool? One of the things is, so if you're brand new, please sign up for Discover. It is going to be the on-ramp into doing life with followers of Jesus here at Mosaic. Also, ladies, did you get any walking in? How'd they do? Any ladies get these walking in? Woo, there they are. Come on. Hey, our, our women's studies, we have some incredibly godly, amazing women who long to gather women together and dive deep into God's word together. And so we're about to launch uh, here pretty soon some of the women's studies and some of the things where where we just, these godly women are coming together. So I cannot encourage you enough as an on-ramp into life with other people to jump in that. Also, if you saw in the foyer next to the coffee, if you got coffee, uh, there's a board with a, it says our community board, and next to it stood some really incredible saints here at Mosaic, T and Susie Laughlin. Um, they're actually shepherds for our small group leaders. They, they tend to the souls of small group leaders here at Mosaic. And if you are one of the, the four that aren't apparently in a small group, if your small group is, is kind of going through a season of change and you got questions, 
Or, or if you're at a place where you're like, man, we really, really need to start something, whether it's in our neighborhood, because I, I'd love for you to look around these chairs that are empty. And what if, what if we spend the winter and the spring loving each other in our city so well that these seats are just filled with people who want, want to be around the room of Christ in this room? Wouldn't that be pretty awesome? And so our hope is if you're doing life alone with God, amazing. It's time to jump in with some other followers of Jesus to do it. Beautiful? So discover if you're new. Lady studies, ladies, if you're looking to dive deep in God's word, or get in a small group if you're not already because we long to do life together every other day of the week, not just this one. We also exist to train up uh, spiritual leaders. And so we have a training center here at Fellowship that does classes, that does not just classes to give you head knowledge, but actually the, the heart as well. And, and one incredible opportunity we have is under one of our dear friends and spiritual leaders, Don Reed. Can we give a big round of applause for our friend, Don Reed? And hey, if you've just walked in, you are welcome to come on to the front. There is, and, and there's lots of seats up here. We talked about it just a minute ago. There's no shame in being late. I was actually supposed to open the service and I was late getting in. So you're fine, come on in. Let's chat with Don. Don, okay. tell us about a line. Thanks. Uh, good evening, Mosaic. Good to see you all. The phrase behind me on the screen coming up, it's not what we want from you, it's what we want for you. You may have heard that before from the platform. Uh, people use it up here, but it has kind of a wide uh, application. The first one being with regard to God's posture toward us. It's what he wants for us, not from us. We just studied Ephesians, yes? Amen. Yeah, and in chapter 2 it says... For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God. We can't do anything about it. It's a gift from God because he is for us. Now, it's also the experience when we come into Mosaic. Maybe you dropped your kids off. Maybe you come in here. But it is a what-we-want-for-you kind of uh, posture. If you drop your kids off, they don't say $10 per child, $17.50 for two, $25 for three, come and get them in 90 minutes. No, they say come in is what we want for you. We want your child to feel safe, to learn about Jesus, to make friends, to love coming to church. Or when we come in here, it's the same thing. This is different than going to the amp or going to a Razorback game where the first thing is, here's what we want from you, a ticket price. Here you come in, enjoy the good music, worship, be with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and then uh, hear from the Word of God as we're going to in just a few moments here. Now... Uh, I have a for you to announce tonight that is incredible for the Mosaic family. It is this, a free will and trust for you, your household, your spouse, your family along the way. You say, well, it was one person up at Bentonville said uh, when I did it up there last fall, uh, he said, that's a no-brainer to take that. And it is. It's a value between $2,500 and $4,000 for your will and your trust. How do I get that? The Align class starts next week, just a week from tonight, same time, 5 o'clock, over in the Family Center. If you haven't been there, uh, then you go either side of the coffee bar out there, and you'll find yourself in that Family Center area over there. 5 o'clock next Saturday night. The Align class, you go through that class, and then you will be handed not only the opportunity to get your will and your trust done, but you will be given a coach along the way, because uh, it's a difficult process and we're, it's kind of scary. Now, a couple things. I'll be out in the lobby afterwards and begin, be glad to answer any questions you might have, but Align class, 5 o'clock next Saturday night, 
Thank you, gentlemen. Hey, we love you, Don. Thanks, Don Reed. Hey, I don't know if you're coming into this room tonight and finances are tight or they're tough and it's just hard to make it to next week. This is an incredible resource for you to align your heart with God and what he has in store for you. I love how Don said that. Maybe money's in the bank and things are good. This is an incredible opportunity for you to align your heart to the heart of Jesus. I I pray that this could be a congregation that just gives well in 2023 for no other reason other than the fact that we've received so much from the Father. Hey, uh, next, this is a really good friend and spiritual leader here um, named Hannah Holly. And uh, one of the things we like to do around here is not only come together in this space to sing and hear God's word, but also to corporately pray together. Um, but as Jesus' followers, we want to model our lives after him. And come on up, Hannah. Hannah um, does such a beautiful job. Not only she, she handwrites and has written prayers and liturgies for us in this room, but this woman models it in that she's regularly praying for each of you throughout the week. And so, Hannah, if you wouldn't mind, would you just lead us in a sweet time of yeah, praying with Jesus? To. I love to. Hey, Mosaic. Good to see you in 2023. Hey, um, if you haven't been here in a while, or maybe you have and you've, you've missed times where we've done prayer pauses, we usually try to do one in the first week of every month. Um, and really what they are are moments, times in the service, built into the service to make sure we're looking at the face of God, which might sound funny because you're like, well, that's why I'm at church. But how easy is it? How easy is it to come to church and forget the point that we are here to connect with the King of Kings and that that's available to us, not just in this building, but outside of this building because of the Spirit of God. We have access to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And so really it's symbolic of what we hope for all of us, that we would be pausing to actually take in the goodness of the Lord and be impacted and transformed because of him. Um, So that's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna do another prayer pause. Um, So this first little diagram talks about um, what we're doing within the prayer pauses, which is first to just relax um, and and to reflect and refocus on God in the space that we have together, um, receiving what he has for us and releasing things that might stand against being able to receive from him and walk with him in fullness. Um, and then that would enter us into rest. And that's a process. It takes time sometimes. It's a habit that we can build. Um, but that's what he has for us. And so we're gonna do that together. Um, I'm gonna read this prayer over us about the God who cares. Um, and I pray, I pray that every single one of us, all of us here on the stage, in the seats, in the back, in the foyer, anybody who's not, maybe not even hearing this, people outside of this building would receive from this because we are praying these things out and connecting with the Lord of Lords. Um, so however you wanna posture yourself, um, most importantly, posture your heart, please do that to be able to receive right now and connect with the Lord. I'm gonna read a slide at a time of, of this prayer um, we're gonna pause and just reflect and, and look at the heart of God and hopefully look into the eyes of God. So, God, thank you that you're here. I pray that you would move in these moments. God who cares, you notice the smallest of details. You see me when I'm sure I'm unseen. Your eyes catch me when I'm sure I've been overlooked. When I'm not even sure I'm allowed to struggle, you hear the silent cry of my heart. You don't miss a thing.
and with the full knowledge you have of me. You do not do as many would. You are not manipulative. You do not have ill intent. You are not flippant and careless with all that you hold. just going to read that one more time because this is true about our God. Sometimes it feels not true, (laughs) but I'm just going to read it one more time over us and I pray that we would look into his eyes and trust that he is not these things. And with the full knowledge you have of me, you do not do as many would. You are not manipulative. You do not have ill intent. You are not flippant and careless with all that you hold. Instead, I'm held closely and carefully. So vast and expansive is your love, yet so acutely aware, pointed tenderly toward the tiniest of intricacies hidden within my heart. You not only see me and know me, you care about me. My God cares about me. Wherever you are right now, whatever life is bringing to you right now, just close your eyes, point your heart toward the Lord, and declare, my God cares about me. My God cares about me.
think my mic's out of battery. <laughs> uh, we're gonna read the offering slide that we've read every week for a long time now. So in one voice to prepare our hearts as we uh, want to give our time and our talent and our treasure to the Lord. Will you read this prayer together? Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit. Amen.
us to be people that wait on you, Lord. Wait on you and trust you. Help us to be people that hear your voice as Hannah was leading us, that see your face, and that wait on you. Obey you, follow you, glorify you, you, you who are before all and in all. We trust you and we love you and we wait on you with faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I would invite you either to turn to Esther chapter three or follow along on the screen. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about studying this book, one of the great stories of the redemption of our God for his people that he created. Very interesting story. I know we're gonna enjoy the study as we move through the next weeks. Uh, follow along as I read. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, Haman uh, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay the hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day. They cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be de destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasures. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been a foreigner in a foreign land? So, some people, that might be your experience here in the U.S. Uh, this might be a new land to you that you're, you're coming in and learning and adapting. If that's the case, uh, we welcome you. We're really glad that you're here. Some people, stepping into a church might feel like coming into a foreign land where everything we do looks a little weird and unfamiliar. And if that's true, we also welcome you. I remember um, I was 21 years old in college, and uh, my wife, Cassie, and I were engaged to be married, and it was, it was the summer before our senior year, and we did a, a tour with our choir of Central Europe, 
And then after the tour was over, we were each going to different study abroad programs in Italy before we would then come back to the States and get married. It was, it was a big summer. And so, you know, I was 21 and very confident about my abilities to navigate the world. And so we finished our choir tour in Vienna. And from a morning in Vienna to that afternoon, I was supposed to get to an orientation at my college in Florence, Italy. What I had was a plane ticket from Vienna to Rome. So I figured it's going to be really easy to get from Rome to this. All I had was an address on a piece of paper for this orientation in Florence. And so I just, this is going to be fine. Now, this is before the days of smartphones. Uh, this is before the days, really, of even international phone plans. And so, like, I'm, I'm on my own, right? There's no, there's no help coming. So I get on the plane, I go to Rome, and when I get to Rome, I find out they don't speak English in Italy. Did y'all know that? I also found out Florence isn't even called Florence in Italy. It's called Firenze. So I'm looking on all these signs, looking for, it's not there. Apparently Florence isn't even in Italy, I find out when I get there. And so I'm fumbling through this really awkward process of like sitting at the the train station at the airport in Rome, pointing, trying to find how to get on a train. I then go to the platform and literally, like I, I don't know how the train system works. I don't know where my train is. I realize at the last minute, Cassie and I are both getting on a train to go to northern Italy, and then we're going different directions. And I recognize that's the train I'm supposed to be on, so we sprint, carrying two suitcases each, throw them on a train, jump on as it's taking off, and then realize that we got into the first-class car, and our seats were 14 cars back. So now we're, like, bumping into everybody as we're the really awkward, dumb American college kids. It was a, a disaster all over the place. We ended up there safely. But what I, what I experienced in that moment was I was thrust into a situation where everything, all of the tools I had to help me orient life were gone. And it was, it was a, a remarkably vulnerable and scary situation to not even know how to walk up and ask someone for directions, to not have any way to, not only was I helpless, I wasn't capable of asking for help. This experience of being a foreigner in a foreign place is one that is actually central to the biblical story. There's a very literal historical experience that the people of Israel had that then is going to become a metaphor for followers of Christ in this age. But there's even another layer to the stories that we're going to look at over the next couple of months. It is one thing to be a foreigner, but there's another experience that people have when they are a foreigner because they have been forced out of their home. When there is a home that they belong to, that they want to be in, but they are forcibly removed and not allowed to return. The word we have for that is exile. To be exiled is to be removed from your home forcibly and not allowed to return. And so when we look at the books of Esther and Daniel that we're going to look at for the next three months, we are looking at the story of Israel in exile. 
And to, to give you a little bit of an orientation to, to where this is happening historically, um, for, for a lot of us, I imagine like the, the Bible is this massive library of literature, 66 books, and it can be a little overwhelming. And, and many of us have grown up, maybe, maybe we've been around church, maybe we haven't, but we typically hear little chunks of scripture, maybe some memory verses and some ideas, but it's hard to get the whole scope of the story of what's going on. Now, we actually have a class here that, that we offer to do that called Panorama of the Bible that goes Genesis to Revelation. We're gonna offer it again next fall. I strongly encourage you to take it if you get the opportunity. But I'm gonna give you a like super compressed version of Panorama just for the, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew portion of the scriptures. And it's gonna come in four big movements in the story of Israel. The first one starts with Abraham. And Abraham was the beginning of this family whom God called and he said, I'm gonna make you my chosen person and your family, my family. I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna give you a home and through you, I'm gonna reverse the brokenness of sin in the world. I'm gonna heal the world through you, Abraham. That's the beginning of the people of Israel. And so those people grow from Abraham's family and then as we read the story, that promise comes under threat when that family finds themselves in slavery in Egypt. And here's a pattern that we're gonna see play out over and over again. When God's people were threatened, God kept his promise to protect them. And that's where we get the story of the Exodus. If you're not familiar with that, anybody seen Prince of Egypt? Okay, hopefully at least you've got Val Kilmer's voice as Moses echoing in your head there for a little Prince of Egypt story. God brings them out of Egypt and he, he takes them into the desert where he meets with them on the mountain, Mount Sinai. And he says, this is what it's gonna look like for you to walk with me and live with me. This is how you're gonna be a nation as I take you back into the land. And he sends them back to the promised land. And while he has them, and they're actually in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has the whole nation sitting on the border of the promised land about to go in. And Moses lays out what it takes to be faithful to the Lord. And, and God through Moses says, if you'll be faithful to me, you will be completely safe from all harm. You'll have everything you need. You'll be safe in the land and I'll take care of you. But if you don't, look at what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He says, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses, ones he's previously talked about, will come on you and overtake you. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There, you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. Which is another way of saying fake gods, fake gods that don't even exist. He's laying before them two options. I'm giving you everything you could ever need as a sheer gift of grace, Israel. Now, if you'll just be faithful to me, nothing can touch you. But if you abandon me and chase after other gods, oppress your people, kill your neighbor, then I will send you out of the land. This is the promise that God makes. And then as time goes forward, God raises up this ideal king named David. And David's supposed to be the king who's gonna help Israel keep these laws, to stay faithful. And God promises David that there will always be a descendant of David on the throne, that there's a child of David coming who's gonna rule Israel and the whole world and bring in righteousness and justice. But it is only one generation down that David's lineage falls apart. 
his son Solomon is the pioneer of unfaithfulness to the Lord in chasing after everything God told them not to. And let me tell you, the book of 2 Kings is a depressing read. As you just read failure and unfaithfulness over and over again. And the pattern has been over and over again, God makes a promise, he keeps his promise every time. And God made a promise that if you persist in being unfaithful to me, I will remove you from the land. And that's what finally happened. Finally, God allowed the people of Babylon to come in and conquer Jerusalem, burn it to the ground, and take God's people out of their home into exile. Now, they were under Babylonian rule for a while, then the Persians captured the Babylonians, and so they go under Persian rule. And that's where we find the people of Israel in a situation called exile. They're outside of their home. Now, we have the benefit of having the scriptures that explain all of this. But there's a pattern that sometimes we can miss going on in the Old Testament. God was telling the king and the priests and the prophets all of this information, but were the king, the priests, and the prophets being faithful to tell the people? No, they were abandoning their post of leadership. So the people, in all likelihood, didn't even recognize how unfaithful they had been. And so now here they are in exile. They've heard all their life, you worship the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, and he gave you this land. And here's his temple where you can meet with him. And then they watch the temple destroyed, their nation destroyed, and they're taken out of the land. Can you see why they would have some doubts about their faith? Can you see how they would wonder, is this God really all he's cracked up to be? In the ancient world, when two nations went to war against each other, they saw it as two gods going into war against each other as well. It's a little bit how a generation ago we thought of the Cold War. It wasn't just two nations facing off. It was two ideologies facing off. The question was, was it was not who's going to be most influential, the United States or the Soviet Union. It was which ideology is going to win. And that's how the ancient world thought about their gods. When two nations faced off, the question was, which god is going to prove more powerful? So to everyone in the world at that time, when Babylon smashed Jerusalem, Babylon's god Marduk defeated Yahweh. That's how they would have seen it. That would have been the takeaway from that moment. Marduk is more powerful than Yahweh. And so you have this group of Jewish people living in exile. Their national identity, their spiritual identity completely crushed. And it is in this context that God raises up another generation of prophets and he starts to speak, revealing to them, I did not lose the battle. I'm in control of everything that is happening. And we get a lesson through the books written in the exile of what it looks like to know and follow God when living in a culture that doesn't. When it might look like, by looking around, that the, the ideology of God is losing every battle that happens. What does it look like to be faithful to God, and how do we understand what God's doing when it seems like the faith has so little influence on culture? And in fact, that was the experience of the first church. The first church had zero influence over the Roman culture. Caesar didn't even know who they were. 
They weren't going to change their culture. There was no culture war. And so in the New Testament, this same metaphor of exile gets picked up to explain what it's like to follow Jesus under the empire that is Rome. And I think there's going to be a lot for us to take in as we look at this as well. Now, we're going to cover Daniel uh, starting in February. Daniel and Esther are going to take two very different approaches to this story. Daniel is very much pulling back the curtain and showing us exactly what God's up to in the world. And we're going to have some very faithful followers of Yahweh to look at for examples. But Esther's a little different. Esther kind of reads like the anti-Daniel in the sense that we don't hear anything about God. It is the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned once. And we don't see any obedience to him. No one obeys the law. Apparently, there's not even mention of prayer in the book of Esther. And our two heroes, you know what their names are? Mordecai and Esther. You know what those names mean? Mordecai is the Babylonian god Marduk. And Esther is the name Ishtar, a goddess. They're named for foreign gods. So Esther asks a very different question. What is God up to when it seems like he's doing nothing? And will God be faithful when his people are not? Now, we're covering three chapters tonight, and I only have 15 minutes left, so I hope you don't have dinner plans. Um, To help us out a little bit, we're going to watch a summary video by some of our friends over at the Bible Project. Take a look. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once. Which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquets feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. 
Now, right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember for Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. The Book of Esther. It's one of the more exciting and curious... In case you missed it the first time, we'll just run it again. Okay, so is anyone else confused on why this story is in our Bible? Like, one of the things that's happening is, is we have this story that's being played out, and especially in the first three chapters, um, we are going to have some interpretive difficulties if we read the Bible the way we grew up reading nursery rhymes, okay? When you read a nursery rhyme or a, a fairy tale, one of the things that you're supposed to do early on is find the moral of the story. And oftentimes the way you do that is you find a character that did the right thing, and if they did the right thing, that means you should copy them. And if they did the bad thing and had bad consequences, that means you should not be like them. And that's the way we're taught to read old stories all the time, is when somebody does something and good comes from it, they must be a good person that you should try to be like. And when somebody does something and it leads to bad things, that's a bad person who you should not try to be like. If we try to read Esther this way, we're going to come out very, very confused. Um, because what we're going to find is for most of this book, no one looks that good. Okay, let's just walk through the story a little bit. Scene one, we start out with two characters, uh, King Xerxes and Queen Vashti. Now, you'll notice some translations, you saw this earlier, will say Xerxes, others will say Ahuerzas. That, that's the Hebrew uh, pronunciation of his name. And it sounds, to a Hebrew speaker, it would sound a little bit like King Headache. Now, I don't think that's probably what he went by, but that should clue us into something that's going on in this story. We have a tendency to read the Bible as if everything is very somber and serious. And you will miss the purpose of Esther if you read it that way. Esther is a comedy. It is meant to make you laugh, and it's meant to sound ridiculous, okay? It opens with this king whose name in Hebrew sounds like King Headache, and it says, now, the king of Persia gathered all of his noble people together. We know from history that what this was, it was probably his campaign strategy meeting to go to war with Greece. If you know about history, that's probably what's happening here. And the way he would do that is he would bring all of his wealthy people together and he would show off his wealth and power. And then the promise is, if you raise funds and an army to help me conquer Greece, you'll get to share in the spoils and you'll get to be rich like me. But how does the Jewish story present it? The king gathers all the rich people of Persia and they have a drunken party that lasts six months. 
This, this reads like political satire. It's like one of those fake news shows where they go, and now we're going to take a look at the Senate to see what our representatives are doing. And they go to a shot of a bunch of people doing shots on a table. And it's like, that's your money hard at work, citizens. That's the feel of the opening scene here. You gather in the mighty, rich, powerful Persians. And what are they doing? They are just getting smashed at a party. And you have the wealthy, all-powerful King Xerxes who's showing off to all the men about how powerful he is. And in his effort to show off his power and wealth, he says, you wanna see how powerful I am? Take a look at my wife. Hey, Vashti, come let everybody see. Oh, she's, she's, she's not coming. She told me no. And then the humiliation as he looks like an idiot in front of all of his friends. And so he just in rage deposes his wife and says she's not queen anymore. Now, if we are trying to read chapter one through the lens of good character, bad character, what's the moral? It's gonna lead us down one of two really bad paths. And by the way, in the history of interpreting Esther, both paths have been taken and they're both really bad. They're both not what the book of Esther is about. One path is, and that's why women should obey their husbands. And, and <laughs> I'm really glad that got that response. But in all seriousness, people have taught it that way. They've looked at this story, and there's a long list of Bible teachers who have used chapter one. They have preached chapter one as a lesson on women obeying men in marriage. Now, I could go on a whole sermon about why that's not what chapter one's about. Let me make one simple observation. Nothing about Xerxes and Vashti is to be imitated in marriage. He has a harem of hundreds of women. And he goes on a six-month drunken rage, probably hasn't seen her in a while, and says, come model for all the men with me so the men can all go my wife. Nothing about this is setting up any analysis of what should happen in marriage. That's not what this is about. You're supposed to look at this situation and go, that's nuts. So if we're trying to take marriage tips from King Xerxes' marriage, we're way off base here, okay? So Esther does not come in later in the story as the example of a good submissive wife after Vashti. That's not what this story's about. Now, the other path people have taken is they said, oh, this is about taking down patriarchy. And so they read the story that Vashti is actually the good role model and Esther was the passive woman Who's, who let the wicked king have his way. So we should all be more like Vashti than like Esther. Again, that completely misses the point of the story. There's nothing in this story, there's, there, if you're reading this in a Jewish context, there's no way to read this that makes Vashti a heroine and Esther the villain. That is to take a 21st century debate and force it on an ancient text. What we're supposed to see here is that this whole palace is a train wreck. Everything that's happening here is a disaster. But the comparison here is not between Esther and Vashti. To make that the story is to miss the point completely. Everything that's happening here is happening to set up the circumstances for what is going to happen in chapter 4. We're supposed to be an, see an out-of-control situation where God seems to be totally absent. 
Now, when we go to chapter two, we run into the same problem if we try to take the good moral story, right? So apparently Esther is, if, if you read the old moral approach of reading it, Esther is supposed to be the godly submissive wife. Um, they very tactfully in that video called it a beauty contest. Here's how a Persian beauty contest works. Women get brought into the king's harem and one by one go spend a night in bed with the king. And the one that he enjoys the most, he names the queen. Now, we're not supposed to make any ethical judgment of Esther for this because Esther probably had no choice. We understand that like Xerxes is a power-hungry madman who has no moral compass. And if we're, try, if we're trying to read this story looking for the good and bad behavior of Esther or Mordecai, Vashti or Xerxes, that's not the main thing that's going out. You should read this story in shock that a Jewish girl follower of Yahweh just got brought into the harem of a Persian king. And the whole time you should be scratching your head going, how in the world is God doing anything in such a broken situation? And it's in no way endorsing any of the things that are happening here. What it is, it's being very realistic about a very broken world. And so then, Mordecai, who works at the king's gate, um, by the way, the king's gate would have been the outer side of the palace complex. It would be, it'd be comparable to, in our White House, there's the residential section where the president lives, and then there's the administrative part where work gets done, where they come together to have all their meetings. Xerxes' palace would have had the same kind of thing. There would have been the residential portion and then the administrative portion where people came to get things done, and that would be the gate. So Mordecai, he works in the administration. And that was very common, by the way. That is not surprising that a Jewish person would end up in administration because they brought people from all over their empire. They recognized talent, and they rose up in the ranks. So it makes perfect sense. But the one thing we should notice, it was in the video just a little bit there. This happens after the Persians gave the Jews permission to go home and rebuild Jerusalem. Cyrus said, hey, y'all can go back and worship the Lord. You can go back and rebuild your temple. And a whole big group of Jewish people went back faithfully to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, everything that was lost in the exile they went back to rebuild. Now, if the Jewish people were given permission to go home and to pursue the faith of Yahweh, why is Mordecai still back in Persia working in the king's palace? Why is Esther still back in Susa able to go in to the king's harem? This is the story of the Jews who stayed, who stayed in Persia when they had the opportunity to go back. And the question we should be asking is, do they still matter to God? Because the faithful ones are all back in Jerusalem, right? They're the ones who are pursuing the Lord. What about the unfaithful ones? What about the ones that are left behind? Does God's promise still apply to them? And all of these chess pieces moving around set up what happens in chapter three. We read it earlier, I'm gonna take a look at it again. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. 
all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. Again, we're not giving any, given any insight into why Mordecai did this. Was it spiritual that he wouldn't bow down to a foreign ruler, or was it just pride that they had some little rivalry in the king's? We don't know. We don't know why. We're not here to analyze Mordecai's actions. We're here to look for what God is doing. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. It wasn't enough to just take out his rage on Mordecai himself. He had to make a plan to kill every Jewish person in the empire. Now, this bizarre and dark hatred for the Jewish people and this anti-Semitism has considered throughout history. It is a tragic blight on the history of this world to see this over and over again, uh, most tragically in our most recent history played out in the Holocaust, that we see this dark desire to destroy the Jewish people. And at the end of chapter three, all the chess pieces are, to, are, are moving into place for what looks like a ridiculous tragedy. And if you were living through these moments, it would have to seem like God has abandoned them. Yeah, maybe God is back there in Jerusalem, but God has nothing to say for those of us who are here right now. Now, in the coming weeks, we're gonna take a look at how this story unfolds. But right now, I think it's appropriate for us to stop where chapter three stops because you know what? That's where most of us are in our lives. We're at a place where we cannot see how the various threads and events in our lives are gonna end up. Everything can seem totally random. The good, the bad, the tragedy, the difficulty. We don't know how all of this is going to play out. And sometimes searching for what God is up to in the thing that we're going through can seem maddening, impossible, deflating, and depressing. So the question that I think we need to wrestle with tonight is what does it look like to follow the Lord when we are in the dark on what he's up to? And we are not promised that we're gonna be given the answers to that question. I think there are so many things that are gonna happen in our life that we will not see the significance of until the other side of eternity. But there are a couple of promises that I think we can anchor in on. This is what Paul said to to Timothy when he was reflecting on this question of our faithlessness. He said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. That God keeping his promises is not contingent on us keeping ours. Further, Paul said this in the book of Romans. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Nowhere in there does it say that you'll understand how that works out. And a lot of Christians have done a lot of harm by trying to explain it in areas that they are ignorant. But the call to faith is the call to believe that God is sovereignly watching out for you 
even when you have zero evidence in front of you. Karen Jobes, a great scholar on the book of Esther, defines the doctrine of God's providence as, as the truth that God in some invisible and inscrutable way governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. That doesn't mean that God doesn't do miracles. What it means is even when he's not doing miracles, he's still in charge. That we should never assume that because we don't see God intervening, that he's taken his hand off the steering wheel. C.S. Lewis, in a letter to a friend, said it this way. The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or one's real life. The truth is, of course, that what we call interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day. What one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's imagination. All the unexpected turns and the disruptions that seem like they're getting in the way of what God's doing in our lives. Scripture tells us one way or another, God's hand is in it. That doesn't make him responsible for the pain. That means he is faithful even in the pain. So as we spend some time worshiping, singing to the Lord, what I encourage us to do is to take wherever those threads are that are still hanging in your life that you don't know where they're going and submit to the Lord with that thing in mind, Lord, I trust that you are in control even here. So Lord, give us faith to know that you keep your promises even when we don't keep ours and that we can trust you and rely on you even when we can't tell what you're up to. Praise things in Jesus' name, amen.
for a night together, to be in the presence of each other, of a family of fellow image bearers of you, and we look to you, and we love you, amen. If you're new, um, please do not leave without saying hi to somebody next to you, behind you, in front of you, or out in the info booth. Someone would love to talk with you. If you would love to be prayed with, uh, come up to the banners. Someone will be here that would love to pray with you, or grab someone from the stage.